What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. David Enrich is the business investigations editor at the New York Times. And he's also the author of a new book called Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an epic trail of destruction. David has spent the last 15 plus years doing financial industry investigations across a number of different stories. In this conversation, we talked about all kinds of different things that he's uncovered, including the time that he was threatened with jail and another time when he was asked not to go on a national television show. But his work on Dark Towers involved over 200 interviews and led to his discovery of things like Deutsche Bank financing Nazis during World War II, including the building of Auschwitz, and what is described as, quote, the manipulation of markets, violating international sanctions to aid terrorist regimes, scamming investors, tricking regulators, and laundering money for Russian oligarchs, end quote. I really enjoyed this conversation with David. We had a lot to talk about both in his work and also just being a New York Times reporter in today's environment. I really hope you enjoy it. But before we get into the episode, I also want to talk about our three sponsors. The first, Crypto.com. They're a pioneering payment and cryptocurrency platform that seeks to accelerate the world's transition to cryptocurrency. They've got a vision to put cryptocurrency in every wallet, which is frankly why we're all here. The Crypto.com app offers a full range of financial products with competitive pricing, well-designed user experience, and high security. It's the best place to buy, sell, and pay with crypto. They've been longtime supporters of Off The Chain, and they keep launching new product after new product. So do yourself a favor and go to Crypto.com to check them out. Again, Crypto.com, the place where mass adoption is occurring. Next is Taxbit. They help you do your taxes. The IRS released new tax forms for the 2019 tax year, which require all taxpayers to attest to whether they traded cryptocurrency during the year. If so, you must file an IRS form 8949, which reports your capital gains and losses. Taxbit automates your cryptocurrency taxes, enabling you to effortlessly track, calculate, and report your transactions. Easily connect your exchanges to securely sync your transactions and run them through Taxbit's tax engine. That's right. They automate your taxes. You can generate your completed tax forms with a single click. The company was founded by tax attorneys and CPAs. They're the most trusted cryptocurrency tax solution. You can get 10% off your tax plan today with a free trial by going to www.taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. Again, taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. Head on over there. And also, don't forget they've got live support with experts who have helped thousands of people file their crypto tax filings and IRS audits. So you're in good hands. Taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. Lastly, Traveler. Traveler is the world's leading blockchain-based travel booking platform trusted by thousands of customers worldwide as their preferred online travel agency. You can book over 2 million hotels and accommodations and pay with 25 different cryptocurrencies or credit and debit cards. Sometimes you can even save up to 40% on travel bookings when you're using Traveler.com. They've got over 2 million listings in 230 countries and territories, and they've got a partnership with Booking.com. So head on over to Traveler.com, T-R-A-V-A-L-A.com, Traveler.com, leading cryptocurrency-friendly hotel and accommodation booking service. 2 million properties, 230 countries, and they accept crypto, and they have a partnership with Booking.com. 
head on over and check them out. All right, let's get into this episode with David. I really enjoyed this one. He's awesome, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. We're here live with uh, David. Thanks so much for coming to do this. Thanks for having me. You're a busy man. <laughs> well, it's good to be here. You uh, are writing books and also uh, the finance editor. At the you know Times. what? Uh, I was the finance editor until about a week ago. Okay. And then I got a new job at the Times, which is I'm the business investigations editor at the Times now. That sounds uh, more important. Well, no, they're both important. It's more. It's better suited to my uh, skill set. They basically were like, maybe you'd be more comfortable in this role. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> and so, I am. So you've done a whole bunch of stuff. You've worked at the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. And I kind of want to go through just the work you've done before getting to uh, the New York Times and the recent book that you wrote, uh, Dark Towers. Um, and then we can get into what is an epic story. But just kind of what did you do pre-getting to uh, the Times? So I'd been at the Wall Street Journal for about a decade um, in New York and then London and back in New York. Um, and that was kind of my crash course. I'd actually worked at Dow Jones Newswires before that. Um, but I kind of the formative years of my career were at the Journal, um, writing about banking, finance, all sorts of shenanigans all over the world. Why the interest in finance and banking? Like if you're a reporter, there's a whole bunch of shit you can write about. But like, why is that so interesting to you? You know, it's funny. It it wasn't really. I <laughs> got into it. I, I had started covering politics out of uh, college because I was fascinated by politics. And that's kind of the most glamorous thing to do in journalism. And it, it turned out for someone straight out of college like myself, it's very hard to find decent jobs and especially ones that pay. So I was in a job that was like paying $15,000 a year. My paychecks would bounce. I had no health insurance and I needed a new job. And it turned out there were a lot of jobs we had in business journalism. And so that's what I gravitated toward. And I was not interested in it at first. I kind of got interested in it. And one of the reasons is that it's, there's just kind of a symmetry and uh, kind of, it's almost like math. Like you can kind of like, there are puzzles to actually untangle that have real answers, which I found really satisfying. You can see reactions to your stories in the stock market. It's something that's tangible mm -hmm. and real. And I really like that. Yeah. And, and so what is like the process for when you're looking at all these different stories you could go write about, like how do you choose which ones end up being, I'm going to go spend a lot of time and, and really resources in uh, pursuing this versus, and eh, that's interesting, but that's not a story for the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or, or wherever you're working. It just really depends. I mean, there's you, I mean, there are kind of multiple ways to look at it. One is just if something is big and in the news and has news value, you're going to cover it. And if there's, if you're on a beat and I was at the journal, for example, I was from 2007 to 2010, I was the beat reporter covering Citigroup. Mm -hmm. And that was a moment during the financial crisis where there's a tremendous amount of news. And so you would go basically anything to dealing with Citigroup's kind of rapid unraveling was something I would write about as in quieter times. Uh, you want to go over the stories that not only you think will have impact and resonate with readers, but also things that in my case, I was passionate about and cared about and found really interesting. And there's there's nothing worse than working on a story you don't care about. And in part because it's boring and that's 
So if, if, you, if you, the writer and reporter, are not interested in the story, that shows very clearly to readers. No one's going to read it. Yeah. So you've broken a ton of stories over the last uh, couple of years when it comes to the finance world. But before we get into that, I want to uh, have you break a story here on uh, Wikipedia, <laughs> which is if oh you, somebody God. goes to your Wikipedia page, they see all kinds of cool facts about you. But some of them may not be as true because people might be confused. Yeah, it's. Wikipedia, I mean, anyone who's watching this who knows me knows they've heard this all a million times, but it's like the bane of my existence. There's someone a long time ago. Actually, let me just at the outset state what I told you earlier, which yeah. is that I have never edited, created, deleted, ever touched anything on Wikipedia, including <laughs> my own page. But there, someone created a Wikipedia page for me a long time ago. And since then, it's built into this very big and kind of unnecessarily and unwarranted, very detailed thing about my life, including just some stuff that's not true. Like, I think it calls me an accomplished French horn player. So, yeah. Which, so it literally says that you're, I think, experienced French horn player. I think it's not experienced because I am. Okay. You could you could argue that that is true because from like grades, I don't know, like two to six, maybe I played the French horn. <laughs> and I think I was like pretty good as grades. It does say accomplished. You're right. Yeah. It was grades two to six. I was like pretty good as French hornets go. But I stopped and by no reasonable – and I haven't played in, what, 30 years or something? <laughs> and I certainly like was not accomplished by Did any – Did you win awards or anything in sixth grade? I, you, no, I didn't win an award. I was like – I got picked for like an orchestra, like outside of my – be good at the French horn for a sixth grader. For a sixth grader. Like, but <laughs> but now it dominates your Wikipedia it's page. It's really <laughs> strange. And the weird thing is it's not – it's not true that I'm an accomplished French hornist, but it is true like how I got into the French horn because of Peter and the Wolf. This is why I can't even believe I'm talking about this. But uh, so someone who knows me has had been like, I think they're probably just like playing like, a prank on me. Screwing with you. Yeah, probably. Right. And it's well, working. Other pieces of Wikipedia are true about, about you. Um, and one of them is uh, when you were in uh, Europe. Think through the framework of like, yeah. should I do my job or should I go to jail? Yeah, good choice. I mean, <laughs> I was in London and the thing I was obsessing about back then was LIBOR, which there's a huge scandal over manipulating interest rates. And this would become a book that I was writing. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, it was a fascinating topic to me and we were breaking a lot of news on it. And one of the stories that we were working on was about this list of conspirators that the prosecutors had kind of compiled. And I, I might be getting the details a little wrong, but it was basically that the prosecutors had amassed this list of all these co-conspirators in this criminal case they were building. And a colleague of mine and I, we were preparing to report that. And the we called the Serious Fraud Office, which is like the main kind of mm -hmm. corporate prosecutor in the UK, and asked them, just basically gave them a heads up we were doing this and wanted to see if they wanted to comment, which is just standard operating procedure. And they responded by telling us that they were going to court to get an injunction against us reporting this. And the UK doesn't really have freedom of the press the way we in America are accustomed to. And so government agencies and individuals, too, use injunctions as a way to muzzle the press. And uh, so they had not – they warned us they were going to court to get an injunction. And then they called us a little bit later and said, OK, as of 4 p.m., there's an injunction against you. And it was like, I don't know, like 2 p.m., I guess. 
And so we, there was a mad. So you have two hours. Yeah. And we got to publish at like 3.59 and like, I don't know, I'm probably exaggerating a little, but it was like moments to go before the injunction kicked in or maybe it was before the court hearing was actually taking place. It was with moments to go and it went online and then nothing happened. And they and they can't do anything once it's out there. Well, no, they, they can. Could. They can. In fact, they did. And we <laughs> thought – I mean, there's a few blissful hours where we thought this is, they were just going to let it slide. And then I was at home and I got an email from a government agency with a like a PDF attached saying that there is a court order naming me specifically, threatening me with contempt of court and jail if we didn't promptly like delete any references to this mm-hmm. list anywhere – and this was like not great timing for me personally because I think eight days previous, uh, my wife had had our first child. And so I was like kind of controversial in the family that I was even at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a low tolerance for me going to jail at that w- Was point. it more controversial that you were at work or that you were being threatened to go well, to jail? It was, <laughs> the, it was just like – it was like pretty bad timing overall for me. Uh, my wife was not happy I was at work and was less happy that I was seriously entertaining the possibility of going to jail, which seemed like a low probability event. But uh, stranger things have happened. There, anyway, there is the, – the Wall Street Journal went to court and fought this and won and the art, the injunction was overturned and uh but it, it you know and this, these are relatively low stakes in the grand scheme of journalism but it's it's a reminder how good american journalists have it i mean we can do we just have a lot more freedom and a lot much greater legal rights enshrined in the constitution there's more protection of the press yeah, we can, the the presumption in the United States is that the press we should err on the side of having a free press rather than err on the side of allowing the government or anyone else to kind of preemptively block the right of free speech. And I mean, that's one of the great things about being a journalist in the U.S. Yeah, and so as you're going through this, like you've got an eight day old, you know, child at home. Your wife's not super thrilled. You're at work. And you get this at any point you're like, eh, maybe we won't actually, you know, publish this. Or do you like turn to somebody and you're like, hey, is this jail thing for real? Like, how, how yeah. do you kind of think through well, it? Well, I mean, initially there was really no question in the newsroom. I mean, this became like one of those scenes that kind of felt like we were in a movie when people were literally like running, like sprinting across the newsroom trying to like beat the 4 p.m. deadline. And there was literally no question. And our lawyers were all involved and they were on board. Uh, and there's no question at that point about like, should we beat the government or not? Of course we should. Like we have a, it wasn't we have a, that we have a right to do it. We have a right to do it. And it was in the public interest. And in some ways, the fact that the government was fighting so hard to silence is Silence us, made us. Yeah, and it just you know we're journalists by nature are kind of anti-authority, and uh, so yeah, that encouraged us to publish as quickly as possible. After the fact, I mean, we had when I got that letter threatening jail and other penalties. I mean, that is a little bit of a scarier moment because our lawyers were like, "Well, probably you won't go to jail," but like. We can't promise you. Yeah, you can't promise. <laughs> it. And also, we were living in the UK with at like the discretion of the British government, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, we're Americans, and we don't have any God given right to be living and working in the UK. And we very much liked living and working in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so that was it. Was ultimately this got diffused because there was a quick court hearing, and it was overturned. The injunction was overturned. Um, and I don't know what I would have done given the choice. I mean, I would like to say that I would have gone to jail to stick up for my rights, but like, you know, I had like I was madly in love with my newborn son, and uh, 
like waging a like going to jail on principle in a situation like that when it's not a life and death situation. And it's not like it's not it wasn't a question of exposing or not exposing a source, for example, which I would have felt much more strongly about. This was a question of whether I stood up on principle for the right to publish things, which technically we didn't have a legal right to do. Right. Yeah. That the, the law in the UK is the law in the UK. We're Americans. And so we're kind of spoiled, honestly. Yeah. And that I think that's my big thing is hearing the story is like there's some stories that are almost like worth going to jail for. Yeah. Right. And then there's some that are like, yeah, we have the right to do this. Like, we think it's a good thing to do. But where is the line? And yeah. I've never sat in that seat. So I don't know how you would think through that. I mean, it, I, look, I don't want to get I don't want to make it sound like I was some like murder here. This was not a life and death issue. This is not even an issue. It wasn't an important, wasn't a particularly important story. And again, I would have felt very strongly about it if it was, there was a source on the line. So if they, yep. if I'd guaranteed I'd protect someone's anonymity and the government was trying to unmask that person, I think I would have, I, I think I would still go to jail to protect that person's, if I made a promise or the New York Times made a promise, I would like to think that I would like go to basically the end of the world to protect that because that's something that is a, an issue of my personal integrity. And it's an issue fundamentally of journalists being able to do their jobs properly. And I think that's a very important precedent. This was not that. And luckily, mm -hmm. it, I didn't get put in a position where I actually even had to make the choice ultimately. Um, and... So thanks to Wikipedia, this is still like a, a live <laughs> issue. What is six well, years later? Yeah. Uh, well, I was so I was telling you the name of the movie is Nothing But the Truth, uh, I heard of which is a a movie. Um, I believe it's rooted in uh, in reality. Uh, but there's a reporter, Rachel Armstrong, who writes a story that reveals the identity of a covert CIA operative. I actually think this is the uh, Valerie, Valerie Plame, Plame yeah. right, uh, situation. And so if you haven't seen that movie, I highly suggest people go see it. It's pretty good. Um, but in that, uh, she does have a source that she uh, wants to protect and needs to protect uh, and ultimately is thrown in jail. Right. And so to your point of like, that's a little bit different situation than you were in, but uh, it's not without kind of the jail scenario playing yeah. out in some of these. Uh, yeah, but I would argue like it's a pr it's like it's similar, but it's actually pretty different. I mean, this that was a situation where the government was trying to get some a journalist to divulge a source mm -hmm. to whom she had promised anonymity. Mm -hmm. and, and that feels like that is like the most like concrete um, kind of ethical or ethos driven part of journalism is protecting the source like you hear this over and over and over again in situations on the extreme side yeah but they really go to lengths to protect those sources well we need to right i mean that's it sounds kind of like a little bit self-indulgent and mm -hmm. kind of precious but it's really important i mean there's like and we'll talk about this in a bit i think but and for the book i just did on deutsche bank the only way i can write a book like that or write the stories like that i did for the times are based on people taking personal risks mm -hmm. to talk to me and those people for one reason or another end up believing that it's in their self-interest to talk to me but they're doing it based on this assumption that they can trust me and they trust Be the safe. new york times that i'm not going to screw them mm -hmm. and it, it's like i that's a vow when i make that promise to someone i don't do it lightly and and again, I'm not holding myself up here. This is just yep. kind of journalism one-on-one, -on -one, especially at a place like The Times or The Wall Street Journal or The Washington Post. And uh, – or really anywhere, like any major news organization. And I think I would bet a vast majority of people, of my colleagues at those and other news organizations would so, think about this basically the same way. So it's not – this is not – and also like, again, thankfully, we live in a country – where our rights are pretty well established mm -hmm. and generally pretty well taken care of. Mm -hmm. And 
and I, I know I and I think all of my colleagues are like grateful on a daily basis that that's the case and we hope and will fight to make it remain so. Yeah. So part of that is also like the media has this role in society. Um, and another situation that you were involved in, I think, was uh, people trying to protect that role, right? And, yep. and rem, uh, remain unbiased or, or the best that humans can do. Um, and so when you uh, wrote your first book, um, you were invited to go on the Rachel Maddow show. I'm sure you went on a bunch of other shows, etc. cetera. Um, but at the time, it sounds like uh, there was folks at the New York Times who had made a decision that certain shows were too political leaning or too yeah. biased. And, and so kind of tell us a little bit about how that played yeah, out. Yeah, that wasn't my first book, actually. That was just stemming from some stories oh, that I've been writing okay. on, in the Times about Deutsche Bank and Trump. And uh, you know you're writing big stories when Rachel Maddow wants you to come on just to talk about the stories Man, you're writing. Because, Ma yeah, Maddow has like probably unparalleled reach um, in obviously in one kind mm -hmm. of half of the political spectrum. And it's like Fox News on one side, her on the other side. Yeah, right? although I would argue that Maddow, again, putting aside like putting aside her ideology and her personal beliefs, like Maddow's a really serious journalist mm -hmm. and it, she does her homework and she calls it like she sees it. But like I have a lot of respect for her as a journalist. Anyway, yeah, I was told I had I and many others at the Times had been on Maddow pretty regularly. She treated the New York Times reporters and at other news organizations very well. And but she's liberal mm -hmm. and she does not hide that. And so there was uh, the Times bends over backwards to try to maintain uh, neutrality on mm -hmm. political issues. And it, there was a decision made by people at the top of the organization that regular, regularly appearing on opinionated shows like Maddow or Lawrence O'Donnell uh, and some others as well was kind of risked that. And I somehow got, I think it was my... I was like had agreed without checking with anyone because that's what I do sometimes because I'm stupid and uh, I had agreed to go on and then it got to back to people at the mm -hmm. times and they said no 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 you can't do that and that caused like a bit of a sting a and console. yeah and look I mean that I think that was the wrong decision and I, one of the great things about the times is that we can we have like an open and honest enough newsroom that you can say I can say I disagree with Dean Bacay or mm -hmm. you know someone else and they have enough self confidence that they can take that and I think they listen and it's not like I persuaded them to change their minds but there's there, other people alongside I, you who I also think a felt lot the of same people way. like it's frustrating because there's look everyone agrees we should be political we should like be impartial and report without fear or favor. We take that really seriously. We sometimes do it better than others, but like everyone's kind of has the same goal. The question is how do you achieve that goal best? And saying we're not going to appear on like Maddow's show uh, because of perception of political bias is it, from my perspective, it just really, it's depriving us and the New York times of access to this huge, uh, like millions of viewers. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, this ban or whatever it was called lasted not that long in the grand scheme of things. And I was just back on Maddow a couple of weeks ago. And I know others have been as well. So, look, that was I, I thought that was the wrong decision. But again, I'm very grateful to work at a place where obviously I'm going to respect the decision that gets made above me. But the, the leaders of the Times have enough self-confidence that they will listen to criticism and listen to people who disagree and change their mind when they think that they should, should do yeah. so. How, how do you balance um, as a journalist today, just given kind of the social media driven world and, and all this stuff of like 
being a person who just it's impossible for you, me or anyone else to be 100 percent neutral, unbiased, yeah. et cetera, with the kind of job requirement of I need to write from that, you know, without fear of uh, what would you say fear without or fear favor? or favor. That's yeah. like a New York Times saying going Got back 100 and some years. Yeah. So like how, how do you balance that and how do you is it almost like, you know, when I go to work, I put a hat on that's super neutral. And then when I go home, I take that hat off or like, like how, do, how do you actually do that? You know, it's hard. I, and I don't know what the right answer is. And I think different we were just there's some discussion about this today in the newsroom. It's like different people have different approaches. Some people just yeah. don't vote. Like they won't even oh, really? they just try to like and that's people in our D.C. Bureau who are much more experienced with this kind of stuff than I am. Uh, look, I mean, we the Times has rules on what you're supposed to not do. Like we're not supposed to neither I nor my wife should contribute money to yeah. political causes or go at a march or a fundraiser mm -hmm. or like engage in any overt political activity. I'm not registered as he, at, with any party mm -hmm. personally. Um, but look, everyone has their opinions. And I think it's our, I think the ultimate test, we kind of know in our gut if we are betraying bias in a bad way, or at least I feel like I do. Maybe my, I'm, my judgment's probably not 100%, but like, you know, we need, and it's really, it ultimately comes down, I think, more to a gut check on the stories you're working on than anything else. Like, people do stupid tweets all the time. I know I do. And generally, if you have to like ask yourself if I should be tweeting something, you should not be tweeting that thing. Um, but from, I feel like there's certain industries where if you have to ask yourself, you should tweet it. Well, then, you should. Certainly you definitely should. Shouldn't. Even if you're like agonizing, like <laughs> if you think you need to ask a colleague if you should, you shouldn't. Like, yep. and it's I've learned that the hard way over the years. So, have you uh, had dumb tweets? Oh my god! Oh really? Okay. Well, I mean, what's, what's the one that you feel most comfortable talking about that you're like, oh, man, man, that was stupid? I don't even have any idea where to begin. Um, <laughs> there's just so many stupid things I've tweeted. Like, there, look, we the Trump administration started, frankly, yep. even before the Trump administration started, the, during the Trump campaign, that was that was shattering everyone's yep. understanding of what was normal. And I think it was really including me personally and including, I think, probably 99.9% .9 of journalists and probably mm -hmm. the, most of the public too. And it was very hard in those early days of the Trump administration to like see things that were extremely abnormal, whether it was Trump and Sean Spicer lying about the crowd size or like this, I don't even can't even really remember. It seems yep. like decades ago. Uh, but there was, we, I, I'll just speak for myself. I struggled to find the right balance between like making a point where I thought a public figure is lying and making a point where I wanted to kind of feel good about standing up on a pedestal myself and yep. just like preening for this like kind of circular audience, you know, like insular audience you're talking to. And it's just like, I don't know. I think there are battles worth having and battles that are, just make it seem like you're preaching to the choir and – there's nothing to be gained from preaching to the choir. It, it's really interesting. A lot of people that have come on uh, and kind of talked about media in general, they usually are not at New York Times, Wall Street Journal, yeah. et cetera. They're usually uh, building kind of more of the new age media models. And one of the things that uh, has been hotly debated in other episodes is kind of this balance for a journalist today of you want to write stories that people read, right? You want to be accurate. You want to tell certain stories, um, but also the mediums at which you do that, the ways you do that evolve over time, right? Yep. So literally you used to write on a typewriter. Now you get to write on yep. a computer. Like yep. there's technology advancements, but also the distribution models change. And so Twitter, for example, is a great way to distribute those stories. And I've had people who come on and say like the downfall of mainstream media is uh, every journalist wants to be a blogger now. 
right? And kind of the degradation of some of those things. But at the same time, there's people who will come on and literally say the reason why the media still exists in the form factor it does is because all of those uh, journalists have taken some of the best things that bloggers innovated on and incorporated them, but kept that framework of, um, you know, kind of uh, not having prejudice, et cetera. Like you sit inside one of those newsrooms. How do you guys think about it? I mean, I think there's. I think it's not like a monolithic mm -hmm. thought, you know, there's different people. And I, I think this cleaves primarily along age lines. Okay. Um, like I think, that would make sense. Yeah. I think the older you are, the more likely, just as a general rule, the more likely you are to hew to journalistic, kind of the more rigid journalistic mm -hmm. standards of objectivity, meaning we don't take sides and we don't call it right and wrong mm -hmm. or like very reluctant to call call a lie a lie. Um, or, you know, honestly, one of the new places where that's really popping up is with race. And I think there has been historically in white male dominated newsrooms of great reluctance to call racism racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of those things that's starting to change. And I think it's, I think the younger generation, and I'm kind of somewhere in the middle probably, the younger generation is, has just a very different vision of the appropriate role of objectivity in a newsroom. I think a lot of younger people view that increasingly as something that perpetuates bias in actually in much more pernicious ways than just being honest about um, what your own personal views are. Mm -hmm. And um, look, I, I mean, it, I don't actually know what the answer is to this. Yeah. I, do, I don't actually think there is like one yeah, answer. You're right. right? There is, yeah. in, in part because different audiences want yeah. different things. I mean, one of the things the Times has been doing a lot more of recently, which I personally like, um, is writing more in the first person. And so oh, which allows the reporter to just be a little more honest about where they're coming from sometimes. And it allows you to embrace and be transparent about whatever personal biases you might bring to this. And it's not necessarily about politics, right? It's a, and I did a story of several months ago about this guy, Val Brooksmith, who is mm -hmm. kind of one of the big whistleblowers in my book. And it, there was, I wrote that in the first person and Val has been like a very difficult source to me over the years. And he's an on the record source. So I was, I was free to write about it. And it allowed me in ways that, you know, I thought, of the, especially at the time, were very helpful. It allowed me to just be honest about the great frustrations I had <laughs> dealing with him, and and also just the, the the great strengths and great weaknesses he had as a source. And mm -hmm. so, to me, the I guess the paramount priority for journalists is honesty, mm -hmm. and it, there are many and like we, you know, honesty in your gut. But being sometimes writing in the first person allows you to just be as trans, even more transparent than normal with readers. Because look, everyone has opinions, and Absolutely. there's no getting away from that. Yeah. Um, before we get into the book, uh, because the book uh, heavily relies on Trump and all of his dealings, yeah. et cetera, what's it like being at the New York Times when he's firing away about the quote unquote failing New York Times and kind of like actually attacking your employer and sometimes even your colleagues, et cetera? Yeah. Like, how do you like? Is it is it almost like a joke internally at this point, it's not or, a is, joke. It, or I mean, is it more of like, damn, will will this ever end? It, it's more again, and I'm probably not the best person to ask this, but just from my perspective, it's it's there's two reactions. One is that it's surreal. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the president of the United States, and it, it used to be the case that it was very rare to hear the president opine on anything that relates to you, right? Mm -hmm. Like it would be a huge honor generally, uh, or maybe dishonor, depending on the context, to to have a president talking about a story you wrote. And now it's become 
just that's par for the course. If you write something negative about Trump that's very prominent, you are not likely, but there's like a decent chance you're going to get yelled at on Twitter and but to his what are 60 or 70 million Twitter yeah. followers. And which is surreal and it's like a little nerve wracking at times. I mean, I think the bigger thing, though, is that it's I'm glad that the Times and other news organizations too are in such a position of strength right now. Like the Times is not failing. Like we're doing better than we've ever done. We have huge growth in subscribers and we're doing great. And it would be a lot harder to stomach attacks on us failing and just generally being bad if we weren't doing so well, yeah. um, just from an objective financial It's kind of like standpoint. if you went to work every day and it wasn't going well and then somebody was kicking you while you were down, that would suck. Right. But as it is, like he's just wrong when he says we're failing. And he knows he's wrong. And there's it's nice to work at a news organization that is succeeding. Yeah. So uh, to do the book, you did over 200 interviews. Yep. Uh, maybe just start with like, what was the premise for doing this? Uh, and then also you didn't take book leave to go write the book. You were doing your job and writing at the same time. Um, so maybe kind of just walk us through like how all this played out and how we get the book. Yeah. Um, it, it was very stupid <laughs> to not take a book leave. Uh, that was a huge mistake in retrospect. And one that I will not be making again as long as I'm married to my wife. Um, so the book is called, just uh, so everyone knows, the book is called Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Trail of Destruction. Uh, you wrote this. How long did it take? It took, the writing process took about two years. Okay. So two years of writing this book while working. Uh, it just came out in February. Yep. Right. Um, and what was the genesis for even going after this story was yeah. it somebody just came to you or no i mean i back i've been obsessing about deutsche bank for a really unhealthy length of time uh i got i moved to london with the wall street journal back in 2010 and at the time the financial crisis was just ending but the european financial crisis was mm -hmm. just starting up and there was deutsche bank the one probably the biggest bank in europe at the time which had these just deep intractable problems that kind of everyone was talking about or whispering about, but no one really knew how serious it was. And so I immediately gravitated toward that as a, an important story, but never really got a whole lot of traction. But my colleagues and I spent a lot of time kind of digging into Deutsche Bank and it was this just great black box that mm -hmm. everyone was kind of scared of, uh, but no one really fully understood. And um, in January of 2014, uh, one of the bank's senior executives, a guy named Bill Brooksmith, who was uh, an American and had been he was, had been at the bank for on and off for like almost twenty years. He was kind of known as the conscience of the bank. He was like okay. a good guy, a risk manager with a real solid ethical compass. He committed suicide in London, and I, my colleagues and I, kind of started digging into the circumstances of that. It seemed we'd heard a lot of rumors about. The, why he had done that. And I ended up talking to Val Brooksmith, his son, and went on this kind of journey or kind of had a ringside uh, seat as Val went on this journey to understand why his father committed suicide. And in that process, Val got all of his father's email files. And there's a ton, of, there was thousands and thousands of uh, documents, emails, spreadsheets, meeting minutes related to Deutsche Bank. And so, and we started writing about that at the journal at the time, although we didn't say 
where we were getting this stuff. And well, why did how, like how did he get the emails? He just requested it and they gave it to us. No, son? so his dad had been using his Yahoo and Gmail accounts for enormous amount of work emails, which is obviously not normal. Uh, Probably and, not allowed, but they can't really stop him. Yeah, I think there was, it was a little more complicated because he was on this outside oversight board of the bank and he had actually retired six months earlier. And for one reason or another, he had just reams of emails. And, and his son just logged in or yeah, something. Yeah, his son yeah. got his email, his uh, login information and started exploring. And Val is a, a complicated character and who is was not an expert in finance. And I kind of helped him understand some of the stuff in there and uh, certainly helped him figure out what words he should be searching for in the search field. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... It, and again, that was a very interesting journey, but it never really got to the point of being a huge story, in part because the stuff Val found was interesting and we wrote about it, but it wasn't earth shattering. Um, and then in November of 2016, Trump got elected president and all of a sudden the Deutsche Bank story went from being one about a European bank that's in a lot of trouble and isn't well run. And uh, it became a story of how this random European bank had essentially helped elect the 45th president of the United States. And at that point, the story went from being something that was a business story to one that was an international, a very hot international story. And so I kind of started at that point thinking about all of the stuff I'd been gathering as how to, what was kind of the most ambitious way to do it. And it, it, even at that point, it took another year or two before I really kind of figured out that this is something I want to spend a couple of years doing as a book. Got it. And so as you're going through it, um, the Deutsche Bank history, I didn't know until I knew that you were going to come and, and start looking at it. Uh, it's fascinating. I mean, this is a really small bank at one point that decides yep. they're going to go on this global march for domination, right? Yep. Um, and some of the things that uh, I didn't know, um, the thing that probably stands out the most is they helped finance the Nazis during World War II, including financing uh, the building of Auschwitz. Yeah. Right? Yep. And like- is that they know that this is bad and they're still doing it? Or is it more of like at the time nobody knows that Nazis are bad and like you know what I mean? Like like, like how do Some they people definitely knew Nazis were bad? Well what I'm saying like yeah, like but how do they explain it away to yeah. themselves or rationalize it, I guess? Well, I mean, the history here is that Deutsche Bank was founded in eighteen seventy. So this okay. is its hundred and fiftieth birthday this year. Oh um, wow. Happy birthday, Deutsche Bank. Uh and uh, uh, they were founded as a bank that was supposed to be helping big German companies kind of spread their wings internationally. And this is the okay. dawn of the industrial era. So like companies like Siemens, for example, mm -hmm. were relied on Deutsche Bank for global financing. And um, and it was really the bank pre-World War II was really synonymous with the German kind of corporate sector. And so the Nazis come to power in the 30s. And they, like other big German companies, very quickly became kind of the corporate wing of the Nazi party. And in Deutsche Bank's case, that meant everything from financing the construction of concentration camps like Auschwitz to financing the factory that manufactured poison gas for Auschwitz to taking over Jewish-run businesses all over Europe. And getting the Jews out and bringing air, it was a process called Aryanization. And they even took the gold that Nazis extracted from Jews' teeth and sold it internationally. So the bank, look, the thing you, I would say in fairness to the bank is that there is not, they didn't really, like it was a choice between uh, colluding with the Nazis 
and being driven out of business. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing I will say not in defense of Deutsche Bank is that they were a party to genocide. Mm -hmm. And it, that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, deep thoughts. Yeah. Uh, well, well, so I, there's a movie on Netflix called The Resistance Banker um, that I watched. Yeah. Uh, actually, Keith Reboyce, I think, was the one who told me to watch it. And uh, it's all about um, during the same time periods, uh, basically citizens getting together and providing literally like underground financing to fight back yeah. against um, these people who empower. Uh, and so it sounds almost like in some sense they were, you know, basically counterbalancing the Deutsche Banks of the world. Uh, yeah. I mean, Deutsche and it's not really the Deutsche Banks of the world. Deutsche Bank was the primary financial enabler of the Nazis as they laid waste to Europe and as they killed tens of millions of Jews mm -hmm. and others. And this is the bank. Uh, the U.S. described Deutsche Bank after the fact as a war criminal. Its leader was tried and convicted of being a war criminal. Um, the leader of Deutsche Bank. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, and then he was reinstated as the leader of Deutsche Bank and like remained at the top of Deutsche Bank for a decade and a half afterwards. And and look, again, in Deutsche Bank's defense- That's fucking crazy. Sorry. It is like, crazy. Like, it is crazy. That is nuts. The history of this bank is, is, and if you look at the bank over the past century, the bank is a criminal enterprise. It, it participated in the single worst criminal event of the 20th century, which was mm -hmm. the Holocaust. And it didn't just participate. It was a, the Holocaust would have happened without Deutsche Bank, but Deutsche Bank allowed the Nazis to be much more efficient and ruthless in what they were doing. And mm -hmm. there's no there's no way around that. Mm -hmm. Deutsche Bank would defend itself saying, A, that everyone was doing this. Deutsche Bank, first of all, has apologized, mm -hmm. so they of get credit for that, I guess. And look, after the war, they, the bank became one of the leading forces for European reconstruction and redevelopment, which is a good thing. And But, I mean, there's just no getting around that original sin. Mm -hmm. There's no getting around it. Yeah. So another part of this uh, in the description for the book is um, that the bank was, quote, manipulating markets, violating international sanctions to aid terrorist regimes, scamming investors, tricking regulators and laundering money for Russian oligarchs. And those are all different situations. Right? And that's not it. Yeah, that's a, that's an incomplete list. Yeah. And so, like, as you're writing this book, it really is kind of a history of Deutsche Bank as much as it is some of the political stuff, et cetera. Like, what what are you thinking as you're uncovering kind of each one of these things? And is it at, at some point you're just like, like, what else could they have done? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a pretty long list of things. Yeah. And that's, again, that's a partial list. Uh, <laughs> is, I was thinking that I've covered finance for 15 or 16 years, and this is the worst bank I've ever seen. Really? Yeah. I mean, without any doubt, honestly. And I've covered some bad banks. Um, how much of this is, I'll call it pre-my birth, right? So I was born in 1988. So like people who are listening to this who are my age or older, or I'm sorry, or younger saying, oh, that stuff happened way before I was around. Like that's the way everything happened, you know, before I was born versus like this stuff happened like five years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. This is stuff of most of this and not all of it, but most of it is I mean, definitely very much in your adult life. Okay. Uh, so this so is bad shit that happened before, still bad shit happening now. Yeah. I mean, look, it's all on, there's like a spectrum of badness, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the worst thing Deutsche Bank has ever done was finance the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Nothing that they've done since then or anyone has done since then really compares to that and it's kind of evilness, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think. That was uh, before I was born. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Uh, although you are a lot younger than me. Um, <laughs> uh, the, Sorry, I look old, so it's fine. 
Uh, you've got your hair, though. Be, be grateful for <laughs> and, that. It, listen, probably not for long, so I'll enjoy while I can. Um, their aiding of terrorist regimes, violating sanctions, laundering money, manipulating markets, bribing public officials, evading taxes, tricking customers and regulators, that's all stuff that's happened in the past decade. Okay. And it, the it's stuff that continue. Look, the banking industry has been a very badly behaved industry in the past 10 or 20 years. And there's no getting around that. And I think there's a tendency, at least for me, or there had been a tendency, to just think, well, banks behave badly. That's kind of like- It's almost like the cost of admission to being a bank is yeah, you have to exactly. And it, this Deutsche Bank took it to an extraordinary level that I'd not previously seen. And there is every bank, every major international bank has been involved in scandals over the past 10 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. Deutsche Bank was at or near the center of just about every one. And that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, this is the there's something very rotten with the bank's culture for a very long period of time that led to that. And And one of the things I've tried to do in the book is not just have this be a litany of like evil shit the bank has done. But it's I've tried to use kind of construct a narrative around it that actually it with human beings being the ones making decisions as opposed to a faceless institution. So mm. I mean that that's kind of one of the things that I care most about that people get out of this book, which is that yes, banks do bad things. All like many companies do bad things. But this is not this is not like a blameless uh just fact of life. This is a result of decisions very clear decisions that humans made at a very at the very top of the bank over and over again that had you know especially with hindsight very anticipatable consequences which was that it, the employees were going to go to these great lengths to make as much money as possible as quickly as possible consequences be damned and if that meant violating the law or being immoral or unethical so be it yeah. It, one of my questions was going to be one, like how high the awareness or poor decision making goes. It sounds like all the way right up to the top, uh, especially in kind of the Nazi situation, yep. uh, literally war criminal. Yeah, but even but the Nazi situation, let's put that aside because that I mean, again, that's yeah, that was awful. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, I think but even some, the last 10 years. Yeah. I think in some ways comparing everything to the Nazis makes the other stuff seem trivial by comparison because it is it's trivial so by bad, comparison. Yeah. But the stuff in the past 10 years or 20 years is not it's not like the CEO of the bank was saying, please commit like crimes, yeah. you know, but the CEO of the bank was saying we need to maximize short term profits every quarter. We don't I don't care about next quarter or next year. I care about this quarter right now. The CEO at the time, Joe Ackerman, set in 2002-2003, he said he wanted profits to basically go up 500% in a period of two to three years. And that's- <laughs> Me too. <laughs> exactly. And you know what? They did it. And oh, they did. They did it. And the reason that they did it is because they- And then he wanted it to go up even more. And they did that too. And the way they did that was by just going, stepping on the gas- and just maximizing short-term profits over and over again and just kicking tough decisions down the road, not investing in things like technology or – which sounds kind of technical and like not like that important. But Deutsche Bank to this day has hundreds of different computer systems that don't talk to each other. And so if you were to ask a simple question at Deutsche Bank like, what is your exposure to Russia right now? There's no answer. They can't. Do you think that's a uh, banking industry no. wide? You think that's it's, a it's a Deutsche Bank issue. They, I mean, yeah, like a lot of banks have technological problems for mm -hmm. sure. Deutsche Bank has just as a matter of policy did not invest 
in any sort of upgrades to their computer systems, no sort of integration of computer systems. Mm -hmm. And they've now got, I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar project now that they've basically got to start from scratch. And they, they didn't invest in compliance. And so you've got a huge compliance and anti-money laundering staff down in Jacksonville, Florida mm -hmm. for the bank that is, I mean, I was just down there last spring and summer talking to people there. And to a person I spoke to, like they feel like they're being set up to fail because the interest of the bank that they're getting from their bosses and their bosses' bosses are that we need to churn through transactions. We don't want people saying no. And again, the consequences of this are in the short term, it's profitable because doing as much yep. business as possible tends to be profitable in the short term. In the medium to long term, it's disastrous because yep. you end up laundering money for people and helping people evade taxes or commit bribery. And then you get in trouble for it. And we say, oh, look, it's a bad cluster of employees here, or a rogue person here. When in fact, it is the work of an institution and very top executives at the bank setting, uh, setting priorities and creating a culture that is deliberately designed to foster this really reckless mentality. When you said that you were down there, like, does the bank invite you in and roll out the red carpet and they're like, hey, they, nice they, to see you again? They do not. Uh, <laughs> in fact, to the, for some reason, I didn't think they would. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The bank, the, my Jacksonville trip, I think that was like probably last May. It was funny. I, look, I had a pretty good relationship and still do with some of the bank's PR people mm -hmm. who are trying to do their jobs and they're not high up in the organization. And I respect them and I think they respect me. Um most of the time, at least they respect me. Most of the time, I respect them. But they, I was down there and it, just in advance had been contacting, I don't know, probably hundreds of people on LinkedIn, um, just trying to set up meetings. And, you know, you get, this is one of my favorite tactics as a journalist is you just flood the zone with LinkedIn requests for a company like this. And you get a very low hit rate. You get a hit rate of maybe 5%, maybe even less than that. But if you've sent out 200 feelers, that's, 10, 10 people. 10 people. <laughs> and th that's great. So I was down in Jacksonville and met or spoke with about 20 people. And it, but I got back. You were back, busy on LinkedIn before you went. I was <laughs> extremely busy on LinkedIn. I got back and uh, and I'd taken great pains while I was there to kind of see. I wasn't like tweeting or Instagramming or doing anything. I was keeping a low public profile because I didn't want the bank to know that I was, you know, literally in their backyard snooping around talking to their employees. And I got back and I somehow ended up on the phone with one of the banks, very nice PR people. And they're like, so how's Jacksonville? And I was like, what? what? How did you know? And it turned out that the 95% of people who Just I- Just forwarded to- Yeah, exactly. Uh, which was, I guess, kind of naive of me that I thought that wouldn't happen. But yeah. um, it did. And, and so like, as you're writing this, uh, one of the things- that I read was the CEO, uh, Joe Ackerman, I think is his name, uh, had a really interesting relationship with the Russians. Maybe yeah. talk to us a little bit about that. And there's like a job offer at some point yeah. or kind of how does all that play out? So Deutsche Bank in general has a really interesting relationship with the Russians. Okay. I'm going back, I think everyone has, anyone who has a relationship with the Russians has a really interesting relationship. Well, Deutsche Bank has probably more of a relationship historically with Russians than any other non-Russian bank. And it, it goes back to financing railroads for the czar in okay. the late 19th century. And Deutsche Bank took great pride in being kind of the premier Western bank basically in Russia, basically without interruption for well over a century. Uh, and Ackerman, as he did with many things, took this to an extreme. And he really, he found Russia fascinating and he wanted to be big in Russia. He wanted to be big in a lot of emerging markets, but Russia to him was this just great frontier of banking. And he cultivated relationships with very senior people in Russia and including the CEOs of some of the state-owned banks. 
um, including one VTB that is has very close links to what had been the KGB, cultivated very close ties with Vladimir Putin. And so much so that when Ackerman retired as CEO back in 2012, Putin met with him and personally offered him a job working for the Kremlin, which is pretty unusual. That's doesn't not happen every day, I'm assuming. It, it doesn't happen every day. And it's really unusual for a non-Russian person oh, to get an offer like that, or much even more so for a, a non-Russian who has worked, spent his entire career working for like these big capitalist banks. Um, mm -hmm. And it was an indication of just how close Deutsche Bank and the Kremlin had gotten in the Ackerman years. And that was a relationship that was very profitable for Deutsche Bank mm -hmm. and also ultimately got the bank in a lot of trouble because as they were doing all over the world, they were really pushing the envelope in Russia and in some cases violating the law. Yeah. So uh, they obviously have this interesting relationship with the Russians. Uh, they've got one that's pretty interesting with Donald Trump as well. Talk to us a little bit about that. So Deutsche Bank back in the late 1990s made this fateful decision that it no longer wanted to be just a German bank or a European bank. It wanted to be, get on Wall Street and, and in the city of London. And the way to do that, they basically tried to build from scratch an investment bank, which is hard, right? There's like big established players that are already yeah. out there. And it's so not just building it, but you got to compete with others that are already right. much bigger. So than they spent yeah. billions of dollars hiring thousands of people, especially from Merrill, but other firms as well. And one of the things they did was tried to build up in the U.S. a commercial real estate business that was going to be packaging real estate loans into mortgage bonds and then selling those on to investors, which in the late 90s was one of the kind of hot new fads on Wall Street. How did it turn out in the late 2000s? <laughs> yeah, not, so hot, not, right? Not. Although Deutsche Bank, again, like this story is so weird with Deutsche Bank because Deutsche Bank had a pretty good crisis. They yeah. shorted the U.S. housing market more effectively than just about any other bank with the possible exception of Goldman. Wow. Anyway, that's a story for another yeah. day. But there's uh, one of the, the – basically, they weren't going to go for customers in the U.S. who were well-established and already had good relationships with other big banks because why would they, right? Like why would – if you're a big established real estate tycoon – you'll have any bank in the world kind of on speed dial ready to serve you up loans. So they need to go for a kind of second or third tier players. The way one Deutsche Bank person described to me is that they would go for the scraps. And at the time, Donald Trump was, uh, was a scrap. And he had defaulted over and over again on his company's debts. He was unbankable on Wall Street because of that and because he was did not have a reputation as a very serious person. And Deutsche Bank... So Deutsche Bank needed unbankable clients and Donald Trump was an unbankable client. And so it was kind of a match made in heaven. And so starting in the 90s, Deutsche Bank started making hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate loans uh, to Trump and his companies. And over the ensuing two decades, dispensed about two, more than $2 billion of loans or debt to Trump. And that was despite the fact that Trump over and over again defaulted on his debts, including to Deutsche Bank. And so you'd have these just wild situations where one arm of Deutsche Bank would say make a $600 million loan to Trump. Trump would default on the loan, sue Deutsche Bank, and then find another part of the bank, in this case the private banking division, to come in and restart the relationship with Trump, lend him money so he could repay the other arm of Deutsche Bank to whom he had defaulted, and they would just restart the relationship. This happened on multiple occasions. And, you know, I've covered Wall Street a long time, and I've more important, I've talked to a gazillion people on Wall Street and in the banking industry, and this is not normal practice. Mm -hmm. It's one in general, generally, 
when you default on your loans, and especially when you do it in a way, kind of this scorched earth way that Trump was doing, where he was not only defaulting, but he was suing the bank, kind of going on the attack against the bank. That is a very good way to end your relationship with a bank. And <laughs> lo and I mean, understandably. And lo and behold, in Trump's case, Deutsche Bank was so eager to keep winning business and really so eager to each individual division was so eager to maximize its short term profits mm -hmm. that they would look the other way. And this is a thing where they were doing it with a bunch of other clients as well that similar situations, bad um, credit or, or unbankable, as you described it. Uh, or was this a specific, you know, hey, two or three individuals and that was pretty much it and that everyone else was, quote unquote, good and they'd taken them from other banks? No, I mean, they were doing this a lot. And, and the other classic, there are a lot of kind of like examples I've ne I'd never really heard of before that aren't that important. The other classic example of this, though, is Jeffrey Epstein. So I Ep wanted to talk about Jeffrey Epstein. Well, here we go. <laughs> uh so Epstein was uh, obviously convicted of sex crimes back in 2008 and somehow managed to remain a valuable client of J.P. Morgan, uh, thanks in large part to senior executives at the bank had these personal relationships with him. But by 2012, 2013, even J.P. Morgan had decided that this was – he was too toxic and he had a very – even though he hadn't been accused of anything new, he had a very well-known reputation all over the world and certainly on Wall Street – for you know, not, I don't not being know. a good dude. <laughs> yeah, not being a good dude, and it's not just <laughs> the fact that he appears to have been raping girls uh, and sex trafficking, but it was also that he was widely suspected of engaging in money laundering activity for some of his clients. And while he's never he was never accused of that officially, that there were lots of rumors about that, and that's not the type of client that real serious banks want to do business with. And so J.P. Morgan in 2012, 2013, severed ties with him. And that left Epstein in this predicament because he has hundreds of millions of dollars in assets, some of which are in cash. And he has all these shell companies that he's been using to do weird stuff with his money mm -hmm. for many years. You need a bank, and, and these are offshore, so you need a bank, a, an international bank that's going to be able to help you deal with this. And who does he turn to? Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank is not only initially willing to do business with him, but sticks with him for... I mean, up until the middle of last year, basically. So right shortly before he was arrested and charged again and then committed suicide, Deutsche Bank was the only bank willing to touch him. And it's... And what are they doing with... Are they giving him loans? Or are yeah. they just banking him? Or like, it's like, both. It was, okay. they, they were lending him money. They were managing... They were doing wealth management services. And I think mo probably most importantly, but also most opaque, so we don't have the full story on this yet, mm -hmm. they were providing all sorts of transaction services and account management services for all these shell companies he had, where he was moving money on behalf of himself and I think other people into basically offshore tax havens and just jurisdictions where there's even less transparency. Got it. And, and what I understand from the Epstein, and I'm by no means an expert or really haven't spent too much time looking into it, is uh, there's two general thought processes to who he was and his importance to the world. Um, one was, here's a money manager who's got a bunch of really wealthy clients and kind of is more uh, the clean image, right? In terms of uh, there's the criminal activity, but from like a business perspective, uh, was just a money manager yeah. who's investing, et cetera. Then there's this world of like, no, there's this whole like blackmail ring um, and the money laundering. And then on top of that, all of the underage girls and sexual yep. assault, et cetera. It sounds like there's evidence or records that would suggest the second example is much more accurate than the first. Well, I, I think it's not a question of accuracy. It's more a question okay. of probabilities. Okay. And uh, so 
Um, because look, Epstein was convicted or was charged, but not mm-hmm. convicted of vast array of sex crimes. Mm-hmm. And I think based on the reporting that the Times and many others like the Miami Herald have done, uh, you know, if you were to ask me, like he pretty sure shit did a lot of bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is whether on top of that, he was also providing money laundering services or blackmailing people or things like that. And we don't know is the bottom line. There's there are a bunch of investigations into what he was doing with his and other people's money. He certainly managed to win the confidence of some very powerful, wealthy people, whether it's Les Wexner, who is the CEO of L Brands, or Leon Black from Apollo, or Jess Staley, who's now the CEO of Barclays and had been at J.P. Morgan for many years. And there was a group of people who should have known better. Mm-hmm. And the most generous interpretation is that they didn't know better. Yeah. And, and through this, um, we are unlikely to get any- You think so? Yeah. Well, I mean, Deutsche Bank has records of what he was doing with his money. Yeah. There's, how, how do you get them? I don't know. If I knew yeah. the answer to I mean, I have some ideas. Yeah. But uh, Any you can share? Well, look, I mean, the argument I would make to Deutsche Bank is that this is they are a bank right now that has a very, very bad reputation. Mm. And yet their current management is new and I think is making an honest effort to repair that image and move past the huge mistakes they've made recently and long ago. And how do you how do you win back the public's trust after you've so clearly betrayed it over and over again? Well, I would argue that one good way to do that is to take an example of something you've done that allowed something very bad to happen, which is Jeffrey Epstein, and come clean about it. You know, help the world better understand the the role you, your institution played in allowing this to happen. And at the same time, do a, provide a public service of shedding light on something that's very opaque right now. And so, look, I mean, will Deutsche Bank buy that argument? I don't know. If yeah. anyone from Deutsche Bank is listening or watching, you should buy that argument. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, Goldman just did this, right, with the 1MDB type of. stuff. Like, they, they definitely didn't walk out and say, like, hey, here's everything we did wrong. But there was... Um, a little bit of scapegoating, right? There's certain people yes. who, who got arrested, charged, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, I think there was even people barred from the financial industry. Yeah. I don't know all the details, right? But but just there was some punishments to individuals. But the bank itself, uh, to some degree, has said, yes, we did participate in this. I don't think that they were They've, super I, forthcoming. Yeah, I feel like Goldman in the 1MDB case has done that in a pretty half-assed way, to be honest with you. Like, they've done it in a way where they're- In a very pro-Goldman way. In a pro-Goldman <laughs> way, right? They're like they're throwing lower-level employees under the bus, and they are denying very staunchly any institutional responsibility in a legal or just moral sense. And look, they're under criminal investigation, and I guess that's what you do. But um, in Deutsche Bank's case with this, I mean, look, you talk to people inside Deutsche Bank up and down the food chain, and they are just apoplectic about the fact that their institution was providing these services to someone as bad as Jeffrey Epstein up until and quite recently, less than a year ago. Mm -hmm. And that is something that they are, I think, mortified about. And it, they genuinely, I think, a lot of them feel badly about it and would love to be able to wash away that stain. And the argument I would make to them, and I know, uh, yeah, I, I would make to them, I don't know, have any idea if it'll be effective, is that one good way to wash, you know, some, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Absolutely. You think he killed himself? 
Um, I know that the coroner has said that he killed himself. I know that there are a lot of people that don't believe it. It's, man. Both of those are true statements. You know, and I don't know is the short answer. Yeah. I mean, I, the. By the way, I don't know either. No, right? of course. I mean, but, no one. Like, but the, to me, it's like one of, if there's a mystery that I think sums up like 2019, 2020, it's this. I, look, but, and also though, it sums up the way, the, the, the way that many Americans have just lost faith in public institutions to tell the truth, right? The fact yeah. that, and again, I don't know what the truth is here. There's um, what I, I guess my argument would be that there's, the, there could be a conspiracy without him having been murdered. Like mm -hmm. somehow he managed like those, again, I'm not an expert on this either, but the two guards like fell asleep or were not paying attention. They could have simply allowed him to commit suicide yeah, I mean, and that is the conspiracy rather than he got murdered yeah and uh, i don't know i mean there, look i don't know i have no idea whether all i know is what the coroner has said and that i know that his fa some of his family and many others doubt what the coroner said but one thing that is for sure is that there are a number of extremely powerful people who have for all intents and purposes unlimited money who quite possibly had a lot of reason to be concerned about what Epstein might have said to protect himself. And the, I mean, he was working with and socializing with some of the world's, in fact, a number of the world's most powerful, wealthiest people and had been doing so over a period of years. And there is, I have no doubt that he had dirt on some of them. In fact, he, the, a year before he died, uh, one of my colleagues, Jim Stewart, at the Times, went to his townhouse oh, really? and uh, and interviewed like inside. him. He was in his townhouse, and Epstein was kind of boasting about the dirt he had on powerful people. And we we wrote about this, so yeah, yeah. this is in the public domain. And but this is a man who that's wild. Yeah, it is wild. Uh, the the Epstein story is crazy, and I I mean this is I've been working on these stories yeah, yeah. with some of my colleagues over the past year, and it's it's wild. Yeah. Um, you also wrote about um, the guy who came forward to the yeah. attorneys uh, after the fact. Like there's, yeah. there's a guy who claimed to be a hacker, I think, yep. right? And he came to two – Patrick uh, Kessler. Yeah, he came to two uh, attorneys and said, hey, I have all the tapes. Yep. Like all these tapes everyone thinks are out there. I have them. Uh, help me. Yep. And then these guys went from like defending the victims to all of a sudden switching around and now they were going to like go basically blackmail. Is blackmail the right word? Um, probably. I don't know. Blackmail is a particular legal meaning that okay. we definitely were not comfortable using in our stories. Got and it. they were, our reporting showed that they, the lawyers were expressed eagerness to use any materials that this guy might have. Got it. To reach financial settlements with very wealthy people like the Les Wexners of the world or Liam Blacks of the world. And it, get money out of them. And, and the point of the story, because uh, I actually remember reading this and- It's a bizarre story. And didn't I mean, know that you were also the one writing the, the yeah. Dark Towers book, um, was these lawyers, not not these two specifically, but just lawyers in these positions that have high-powered clients and, and they can kind of choose sometimes to defend the victim, sometimes to defend the uh, yeah. the accused, et cetera. 
Um, well, and sometimes they try to do both. Yeah, and, and they just they just navigate this really fine line uh, in life, and we put a lot of trust again yep. in them doing the right things, etc. And it was just a fascinating story because then you overlay it with like the whole Epstein stuff and yep. just the salaciousness of it. And that was one of the weirdest stories I've ever worked on. I mean, there's in part because the guy who's claiming to have these videos is we don't know his real identity, and we have not. Oh, you guys still don't know who it is. We, no, I mean we've met him, but like and talked to him, and oh. but we. He says his name is Patrick Kessler, but that does not. Uh, and even he acknowledges that's a fake name. And uh, but you've he, met him in person. I, like, I actually haven't, but my colleagues okay. have. And we yep. we did a like a little documentary, and he sat for it. And like, there's yeah. So we no one came forward that saw it and was like, oh, that's my brother. I, no, we. You, that's part of the reason we did this is yeah, we yeah. thought maybe that would get him out of the like like who is this guy? Because we have no idea. This guy he could be. The range of possibilities is like he's an insane person or he's for real and he really does have these videos or he's working to discredit the lawyers or he's Mm -hmm. working to discredit the victims or he's working to discredit Les Wexner and Leon Black or he's working for Israeli intelligence. I mean, I'm just making shit up. But like we have no idea. We What we have no reason to think is true is that he is who he says he is and has what he says he has because he he presented no actual hard evidence of having – these supposed videos of uh, powerful people having sex in Jeffrey Epstein's properties. And mm-hmm. that was kind of his underlying pitch. And his inability or refusal to actually show the goods made us doubt very much his yeah. uh, his honesty. You live a fascinating life. <laughs> Journalism <laughs> like, is awesome, man. That's... But, but just like you specifically at this intersection of uh, kind of the news and the investigative components in the finance world, uh, just a lot of the players involved, et cetera, are uh, – I think people are just by those who amass great fortunes um, yep. and how they do it and you know, is it legal, is it not legal, et cetera. And you spend a lot of time on those stories. So I think it's pretty interesting how you specifically do it. I mean, I am lucky to be able to do something that I love and do it for an institution that has the resources and the appetite to do really great stuff. And I'm blessed by the amazing colleagues I have who I work around. And, uh, you know, I feel grateful every day. Yeah. Um, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about uh, Bitcoin and crypto because uh, I, um, when I saw that you were writing the book, uh, I've been saying I've got the saying for the last two years of long Bitcoin short the bankers, and really what it was was more of like short uh, short central banking type monetary mm-hmm. policies. But of course, when you say that, the Twitterverse runs with oh all bankers are bad, right? And so now I've somehow become like my DMs are filled every time a bank does something bad. I just get flooded with DMs of like look that look at what they did. Um, but you also while you're covering a lot of that and doing the investigative reporting, you also wrote uh, a piece about the Winklevi, right? And uh, Ben Mesrick's book, yep. etc. What was your take on like? There's like this new finance world that's getting built around Bitcoin, et cetera, and then the Winklevoss twins and, and kind of all of that. Yeah. I mean, look, that was a review of uh, Mesrick's book, um, which I like wasn't a huge fan of, honestly. Oh, you didn't like the book? No. I, I mean, there's- Why not? I, th- I didn't think he made a good argument for why the Winklevi in particular were- in a position of particular interest, honestly, like they from my and I'm not an expert on this beyond yeah. having reviewed a book. And to be honest, though, the thing that was most jarring and kind of off putting to me as a journalist reading that book was a disclaimer. Those at the very beginning of the book 
which is that it was, again, I'm not going to get this quite right, but it was something to the effect of some scenes and dialogue in this book are imagined. And it, to me, as someone who labors like every day to, and again, I watch my colleagues doing this, and I have so much respect for my colleagues doing this, the painstaking way we try to verify every word in a story and every quote in a story and every little fact and the lengths we go to just like, we agonize over sentences to make sure things are right. It is so frustrating to then see someone in a kind of small print disclaimer at the beginning of a purportedly nonfiction book by a serious best-selling journalist to just kind of blithely state, oh, okay, I just made up a bunch of the shit. Like mm-hmm. that, I don't know, that really, and Mesrick's got his following and I, there's nothing, per- I've never met the guy. I'm sure he's great. Yeah. And uh, he's, he came uh, out with podcasts. Yeah. Look, there's, I have nothing. And, and he also wrote books about aliens. So he's good at my book. Hey man, there's, <laughs> and look, the, the um, Accidental Billionaires, his first book, yeah. which actually I think had a similar disclaimer, but was like a, re- the, he's a really good writer. So and, here's the one thing he told me, which I actually think plays into this. Uh, I'm not speaking for Ben. This is my assumption. So I could be wrong on this, um, is that uh, he actually, a lot of times will go sell the uh, movie script first, so he'll get the movie deal, and then he'll write the book hmm. as That's a way to, as a way to um, basically ensure that there's going to be movies. so accidental billionaires um, and social network, right? Yep. Um, and in this case, same thing, right? So the movie script, there was a movie deal done, and then the book was written. And so I don't know, but my guess would be that. Part of this is like there's a book that's based on true events, but it also is uh, a hybrid into like a movie script. Right. But I, again, I, guess, I look, hear your I'm point. I'm just like I'm an old time. fashioned stickler in this, but it, yeah, to yeah. me, it's personally really important because I see people like the president of the United States going on labeling things fake news. And our response to that is that, dude, you have no idea how hard, like we get things wrong every day. But we try so damn hard every day to get our facts right in the lengths we go to to make sure that there is nothing wrong. And that, frankly, the way the transparency with which we correct things when we do inevitably get things wrong, like that is so core to what mainstream news yeah, does yeah. as part of its job. It's like pretty frustrating to then see someone who has this great megaphone like Ben Mesrick does go and just have a complete it's like fine if he's not going to call it nonfiction, but nonfiction means it's anyway this is my bias and yeah, i'm yeah. not i'm not even trying to like i guess the other thing and I, i'm not an expert on bitcoin or the winklevi just my critique of the book was that um the winklevi came across to me as like i didn't have that much like sympathy for them they they were they got in mesrick's telling got kind of ripped off by mark zuckerberg on this idea that they had in college and Zuckerberg becomes extraordinarily wealthy, but it's not in the, but the Winklevag get pretty well compensated themselves. And it's like, they're getting very, they're getting enormously rich themselves for an idea that was like the half-baked college idea. And it, it's not like they had executed a plan perfectly or built a company themselves. They, they had a great idea and in their telling or Mesrick's telling, they got ripped off by Zuckerberg, but they got, I can't remember the number. It's like tens of yeah. millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in Facebook stock or in cash. And I, I think it was tens of millions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and uh, to me, I just like so. So here, here's my uh, my one pitch to you. Um, and but that can I just say though that's yeah. not that's nothing against me. Like of that's course. nothing against digital currencies or Bitcoin or anything like that or crypto. Here's things. the one thing I'll say about Cameron and Tyler that uh, I think is underrated still. So even after Ben kind of did a 180 on them, right? Because yeah. he even yeah. says like, "Hey, look, yeah, yeah, I yeah, had yeah. one perspective of them. Now I've changed my mind." Uh, 
in some weird world in the future, if Bitcoin becomes what I think a lot of Bitcoiners believe it will become, they probably go down as the best investors of our lifetime. And the reason being, they made a investment so early in Bitcoin when it was, you know, very, very unpopular. No one really knew yep. about it. They put millions of dollars into this thing. And then the amount of Bitcoin that they own could be eventually, I mean, they could be the first trillionaires. Yep. Right. Now, there's a lot of what ifs that have to occur to, to get to there, et cetera. But to me, there's a lot of people who I think yeah, take their perspective. Oh, if you know, if I had fifty million dollars, I would put you know ten million dollars. No, one hundred percent. Totally. And I'm like, if you had fifty million dollars, you would spend it all, <laughs> right? You wouldn't be investing in shit. <laughs> no, and look, my critique of this is not a knock on them at all. It's that the and look, who knows? Either Bitcoin or digital currencies in general are going to become they're going to take over the world, or they're kind of not. I feel like mm -hmm. I, I, I you think it's pretty binary. Yeah, I, yeah. I do. I say that from a non. -expert I don't think standpoint. that you're necessarily wrong in in that thought process. At, at least in the sense of it, the promise of it is very binary. So it's like, hey, look, right. either this becomes huge or like it's not important. Not important doesn't mean zero. It just means that uh, it's kind yeah. of like every other asset. And, right, exactly. Know. And look, blockchain is clearly a technology that is going to be ubiquitous mm -hmm. if, to the extent that it isn't already. But that's different, obviously, than saying the currencies will be. And look, you know, they if their bet is right, that's obviously going to make them – they're, they'll be hailed as visionaries, yeah. right, rightly so. And and so when you're doing a lot of the investigations, et cetera, into a lot of the banks and financial organizations, yeah. et cetera, does any of this come up? Like do any of the employees or anybody talk about any of this stuff? Or is it really there's like a you Bitcoin mean, crypto world and like it's a very much eco yeah, you know, chamber versus the Wall Street world? It's Yeah. I mean, you get executives on Wall Street paying lip service to it occasionally, but it's – look, there's a great fascination with – uh, blockchain, blockchain, obviously, but uh, they're, they're the blockchain, not Bitcoin crowd, which get, right. they get made fun of by the Bitcoin crowd is the, the that's look, like a 2015 it, narrative. But also that's kind of just the way you, like I would imagine super low risk. Well, it's, it's low risk and it's helpful, right? It's a great like it's that is great social value. Mm -hmm. And it may turn out that Bitcoin and other digital currencies have great value as well. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's that surprising that the mainstream world, the mainstream finance world is not embracing it because it's kind of an existential critique of the mainstream finance world, right? And and I think you get it better than you're letting on. <laughs> well, no, I mean, there's, I, and I respect that also. It's, I, I don't have any problem, like, I, you know, I don't understand it well enough. Yeah. And no, but you nailed it, right? It's this idea that uh, there's an existing system and there was this creation that really is the antithesis to the existing yeah. system, right? It says, hey, the existing system has flaws. We're going to correct those flaws he, she, they, whoever created right. it, right? And you get this weird world uh, in the future of either the existing system wins and this new thing goes away, the new thing wins and the existing system goes away, or there's coexistence. So basically, right. you got three outcomes. And I actually think, um, you know, if you ask somebody like uh, an Andrew Ross Sorkin or something, right, he, he would say that um, it's one of the most uh, polarizing things he's ever seen where you bring um, a bunch of, you know, let's say 10 financial executives into a room that are all intelligent, all respect each other. And you ask them, what do you think about Bitcoin? And you leave, come back in 20 minutes, five are on one side, five are on the other side. And they literally think and like the other lot, side is stupid yeah, and they're like what a, they believe. Some black eyes, yeah. and like fat lips. It, it's around. just super, super polarizing, um, which I think drives more of the fascination.
right? It's because you have all these yes. really smart people who so vehemently disagree on this one thing. And it's like, well, what ends up happening? And based on my very limited experience in this world, uh, I think a lot of the Bitcoin enthusiasts kind of revel in their outsiderism, right? And oh, there's, sure. I think... Again, long Bitcoin, I, short the bankers. Yeah, it were, <laughs> and I think there would be some of the fun maybe would be taken out of it if all of a sudden everyone was just like, okay, Bitcoin wins. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you know, the, the the point of it is to kind of give the finger to the banking world, and yeah. if banks. And there's some, I mean, look, Fidelity and, and yeah. others now are starting to, I think, realize, hey, look, like maybe this is important. Or Square is a great example, yeah. right? Where it's like 50% of their revenue now is that comes right? from Bitcoin. Um, I didn't or, know that. I'll call it Bitcoin related products. Yeah. If, if I remember correctly, it's like 50% of top line revenue comes from the Bitcoin related product, but they only did about uh, $8 million in profits. So mm. on a percentage basis, profit wise, yeah. there's still like less than two or 1% of, of profits come from it. But from revenue basis, it's, Huge. Right. Look, the way these things normal again, not speaking about Bitcoin yeah, or yeah. currencies at all, not even speaking about banks, but just in general, in my experience as a journalist, the way most of these kind of like hyper polarized, like seemingly binary issues actually work out in the end is that they're not binary. They, it turns out that there's a lot of shades of gray and outcomes kind of merge as time passes. And again, I don't know enough about Bitcoin to say whether that's the case here, but there is... Yep. I mean, it's certainly not the kind of thing that is, is uh, certainly like at the New York Times and in the bankers I talked to, mo I don't think most of them view it as a fraud. They just like they view it as like a kind of speculative device that is popular on uh, on the fringes kind of. Yeah. And that's that may the well, young people play with it. Right? The young yeah. people and kind of the like the far right or the far left, I think mm -hmm. it's kind of the perception, which, again, I. I'm sure is not really accurate. And uh what well, definitely has like a libertarian bent to it, right? right. Kind of the self-sovereignty and, and all this yeah. kind of stuff for sure. I think look, being dismissive of something that is as popular and increasingly common as Bitcoin is that that's a mistake. And it's very easy for people in their like, you know, big towers at a bank or in journalism or academia to kind of look down your nose at this upstart mm -hmm. and just write it off as like idiots doing this and that's almost always you know you get your comeuppance yeah for sure um people can go to amazon or uh where else to buy the book just google it dark <laughs> towers dark towers deutsche bank donald trump an epic trail of destruction and you'll find it and you should buy it what um what do you want people to take away from the book that this is a story about how the decisions of human beings can have tragic consequences and not just for a bank, but for companies, for economies, for humans. So you can see this now. Joe over there has uh, learned how to put the, That's uh, good. the graphics over That's the uh, really screen. Nice. And all of a sudden now I see graphics just flying into the screen, that book must, covers, everything. That must be very distracting. <laughs> no, I just know that he, uh, I, I said that on the last episode, he's uh, he's going to be dangerous now that he has this ability. I'm waiting for him to start putting memes and everything else out there. Uh, uh, don't give him any ideas. Um, all right. Uh, to finish up, I've got two questions for you and then you get to ask me one question to end. Uh, what's your favorite book that you've ever read? Wow. Can't be one of your own. <laughs> it definitely would not be one of my own. Uh, <laughs> my favorite book, fiction or nonfiction? You choose. Wow. Um, I think my favorite not my favorite fiction book is 100 Years of Solitude. 
Okay, what's uh, that about? It's a it's a kind sounds of sounds cool. It's uh, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, it's a uh, magical realism, and it's about this village that is. It's kind of an isolated village, and weird shit happens. It's, it's serious, a fiction book. It's fiction. Okay. It's a uh, hundred years of solitude. One hundred years of solitude. Okay. It has the best opening line, in my opinion, of any book ever written. And I don't. I'm not going to be able to recite it, but it's a wonderful book. Uh, I don't know. Nonfiction wise, there. You know, I I can tell you the best couple of nonfiction books I've read recently are uh, Midnight in Chernobyl. It's fantastic. Um, uh, Say Nothing by Patrick Redden Keefe is fantastic. Um, those are probably the two best books I read last year. Awesome. Uh, I also asked everyone about aliens. Who think you think they're real? You believe? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why? Why? Because the I believe as well. Because the universe is huge, and of course, there's like I don't know what form the aliens take or whether we'll ever see them, but like. How could there not be? Yeah. There's a guy who uh, who I had on the podcast, and he basically said, there's two questions every human asks. What happens when we die? Right? Like, is there an afterlife or yep. not? And two, are we here alone? And ever since he asked me that question, or he said to me that framework, I'm like, those are the two questions that everyone's going to ask. So are you going to ask me what happens when we die? I've never asked, but what, what do you think? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I, you know what's actually scarier to me is not what happens when we die, but actually is there life here? And uh, it's more of this thing of, um, you know, I've asked 230 plus people this now, so I've thought quite a bit about it. But like, we actually don't want the aliens to come here. We probably want to go find them because in at least human history, when somebody invades or discovers something, it usually doesn't turn out so good for the people who were there first. That's right? that's true. On the other hand, you know, we've never encountered anyone from outside of Earth. And we so think. maybe it would work differently. In uh look, it it's it's so serious that uh Edward Snowden in uh his book, he literally says that when he got into the uh, NSA databases and stuff, one of the things he searched for was any files on aliens and UFOs. And what did he find? Nothing. Well, of course there'd be no files though. Right? And so it it's just Super fascinating. Um, and today, actually, I saw a uh, a rendering in four billion years. They say that our galaxy I saw that. is going to collide. collide. Yeah. And uh, you start thinking about just the size of this stuff, right? And um, I, another stat that uh, uh, somebody sent me was uh, there's 10,000 planets. Uh, or I'm sorry. I think it's 10,000 stars that are out there for every one grain of sand on Earth. Yeah, the like, universe is a big like, fuck, place. We really don't matter. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we matter, but it's just it's filled with other things that matter. Too. Uh, <laughs> what one question you have for me to finish up? Um, what happens when we die? So, I don't know. Obviously, the one thing that I will say uh, that I'm fascinated by is: do you ever read these accounts of people who pretty much like die and come back? Yeah. Uh, they all tend to be very similar, right? And it's almost like this like rewinding of your life and there's a light yep. and like all this kind of stuff. And I'm not somebody who's like, you know, super conspiracy theorist about any of it, but I do think that that cohort of people who have gotten the closest to death and, you know, uh, fortunately not died, uh, probably have more to tell us than we give them credence um, because everyone else is frankly full of shit, right? Like... We're all reading books that, you know, some people think are factual. Some people think are complete fiction. Some people 
think they're fiction but still read them because it puts them in a good you know yep. mental state some people are like you guys are all fucking crazy and like science is real i have no clue but just for whatever reason that cohort of people who uh you know got very close to death and came back and say hey, this is what i experienced eh, they probably got something going on there yeah it seems like it, you know they know more than anyone else yeah and anyone yeah. else who's alive yeah, and also on top of it, uh, you start to get this. Um, you know, we, we invested in a company uh, years ago now that um, they won a bunch of awards for freezing. Uh, and it started out as animal brain, so I think they started with like a rabbit, and then they froze like a pig's brain or something. And when you quote unquote freeze the brain, the way that they do it, and I'm overgeneralizing, is basically they take cryogenic freezing technology and deliver it through an oxygenated process. But they're trying to uh, freeze your brain with uh, 100% structural integrity, which would, in essence, mean that they freeze the synapse connections. Well, that's where your memories, your knowledge, et cetera. Wait, why? So their like, huge pie-in-the-sky vision would be work your way up in size of brain all the way to a human brain. If you can freeze a human's brain, then you could actually either do one of two things. You could basically download all of those memories, knowledge, et cetera, into a computer. So you know the, the uh, kind of ideal state being imagine if Einstein's brain was around we could tell him our problems and use his brain power to help us solve whatever or two you could do it for like research right research is probably the more realistic yeah. one but uh, when you start getting into that world as I was researching all this then you find out like people are actually cryogenically getting frozen you know rich people yeah because they think in 30 years we're gonna have a technology that can live forever yeah. <laughs> it's like, and you, you say you're you think aliens maybe are terrifying that is terrifying to me that, that terrifies you the notion of people freezing brains and like being able to download so yeah that scares the, that's like the scariest thing i've heard today <laughs> so look it, it it's a thing though that uh i'm actually of the belief like longevity all, all the stuff is, will happen you and i probably won't be around for it but uh just the arc of human kind of advancement puts us in a place where you know i don't know if you were born 100 years ago what was the average expected life maybe 40 45 i think 50? probably more than that i yeah. guess it depends where you live where you and, right yeah. but it, but it's not like we went from 10 to now we're at you know 75 or yep. whatever it is it was we've probably gained in 100 years i don't know 10 to 20 years probably and so if you think of it that way it's like in 300 years could people be living to 120 maybe i don't know but seems more realistic than, uh, you know, you or I discovering aliens tomorrow. So, <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> All right, guys, go get uh, Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an epic trail of destruction. Uh, and you can follow David at David Enrich on uh, Enrich. Twitter. Enrich. Yep. Oh, man. See, it's okay. Look, you, the it's okay. CH. All right, here's what I'm going to say. I get this every day. So, But because some people, when they pronounce their own name and it ends in CH, they say K. Yeah, no, I, I get it. Uh, and you say Enrich. Is that the right way to say it? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Go follow him on Twitter. Go buy the book. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll have to do this again after you break a couple more stories. Thank you. I'll be back. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review... Simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.